Our text this morning is Acts 2, verses 1 to 21. The story of how the believers were filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. I'd encourage you to open a Bible if you have one available to you, to Acts 2. I want to focus this morning on Peter's quotation from the prophet Joel in verses 17 to 21. Peter uses the words of the ancient prophet Joel to understand and to explain the amazing events, the amazing events that are taking place around him. So it's my conviction that by taking a closer look at these prophetic words together this morning, it will also help us to understand more fully what took place at Pentecost. So I'll be making my main points from those verses, verses 17 to 21, but before we get there, uh, we should look briefly at the events themselves, described in verses 1 to 13. So we're in Acts 2, verses 1 to 21. And verse 1 begins, when the day of Pentecost arrived. So the first thing we need to know is that the day of Pentecost was already a holy day in the Jewish calendar long before the events of this story took place. In Leviticus chapter 23, God told the people of Israel to count seven weeks from the Feast of Passover, seven weeks, meaning making 49 days, and on the 50th day to make a special grain offering to the Lord. In that part of the world, the wheat harvest takes place in the late spring, so over the course of the 49 days after Passover, the people would harvest their wheat, and then on the 50th day, they would bring some of that newly harvested wheat to the temple, and they would offer it to the Lord their God, who brought them out of slavery in Egypt and gave them the land of Canaan. And then they would have a big feast. And in the Old Testament, this festival is called in Hebrew Shavuot, or in English, the Feast of Weeks, because you count seven weeks from Pentecost. But Greek-speaking Jews, like the ones, the ones who wrote our New Testament, called this festival Pentecost, which is simply the Greek word for 50th, because it's on the 50th day. So that's when this story takes place, on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. And 50 days after not just any Passover, 50 days after the Passover on which Jesus had been arrested and crucified. Three days after his crucifixion, of course, Jesus rose from the dead and he appeared to his disciples many times over the course of 40 days, as we read last week in Acts chapter one. And at the end of those 40 days, Jesus ascended into heaven. But before he ascended, he told the, he told the disciples to wait there in Jerusalem for the promised Holy Spirit who would be coming to them in just a few days. Well, now it's been just a few days since Jesus said that and then ascended into heaven. It's the day of Pentecost. And chapter 2 verse 1 tells us, the believers are all together in one place. Ever since Jesus ascended, all the believers have been gathering together to wait and to pray. All the believers, not only the apostles, but also the women who knew and followed Jesus, and Jesus' mother, Mary, and Jesus' brothers, and many others. 
Acts chapter 1 verse 15 tells us that there were about 120 in all. 120 women and men who believed in Jesus. Who believed that just a couple of months ago, he had died on the cross for them. That he had poured out his blood for the forgiveness of their sins and to bring them into a new covenant with God. 120 women and men who believed that God had raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him to heaven as Lord, and who trusted him to be their leader and savior in this life and the next. 120 Christians. That's all the Christians there were in the world, gathered all together in one place, one house in Jerusalem. But they're not the only ones in Jerusalem, of course. Let's skip ahead to verse 5, which tells us that there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Because it's the day of Pentecost, the city is full of Jewish pilgrims, devout Jews from all over the world. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, Moses instructs the people of Israel that every male Israelite must come to the temple three times a year for Passover, for Pentecost, and for the Feast of Booths or Sukkot. On these three holy days, Passover, Pentecost, and Sukkot, every male Israelite is supposed to come to Jerusalem and make offerings at the temple. Now, by the time that the book of Acts takes place, about a thousand years after the time of Moses, there was a big Jewish diaspora. That means many Jews uh, living abroad. Many still lived in the historic land of Israel, but for various reasons, there were Jews living across the Mediterranean world and the Middle East and all over the place. And in this period, there were at least some rabbis who taught that the law of Deuteronomy chapter 16 only applied to Israelites living in the land of historic Israel. If you lived abroad, you were still encouraged to travel to Jerusalem for these festivals, but you weren't obligated to. Nevertheless, many Jewish men, devout men, as this verse puts it, did make these pilgrimages. One modern historian estimates that there would have been about 500,000 pilgrims at one of these festivals, 500,000. From far and wide, they came up to Jerusalem in the spring for Passover and Pentecost, and then again in the fall for Sukkot. For people like Jesus and his disciples who came from the region of Galilee, about a hundred kilometers north of Jerusalem, it wasn't too big a deal to make these pilgrimages. They could even come up for Passover and then go back home to Galilee and then come back up again for Pentecost. In fact, that must be what at least some of Jesus' disciples did because the gospels tell us that after Jesus' resurrection, in the period where he was appearing to his disciples over the course of 40 days, he appeared to them both in Jerusalem and also in Galilee. So evidently during that period, at least some of his disciples left Jerusalem, went home to Galilee, and then came back to Jerusalem on time for the Ascension and for Pentecost. They could do that. They could go back and forth between Galilee and Jerusalem because it was only about a five day journey either way. But many pilgrims, coming from further away, would have had to come to Jerusalem for Passover and stayed through to Pentecost. 
there were, for example, many Jews living in the Parthian Empire, the empire just next door to the Roman Empire, just to the east, in the territory of modern-day Iraq and Iran. For a Parthian Jew to travel to Jerusalem would take about a month. So if a Parthian pilgrim got to Jerusalem for Passover and then turned around and went right back home, there's no way they'd be able to make it back for Pentecost. For pilgrims from Parthia and from all sorts of other far-flung parts of the Jewish diaspora, it would have made more sense to stay in Jerusalem for the whole 49 days between Passover and Pentecost, to knock out two spring festivals in just one pilgrimage. So I think it's a, a safe assumption that many of the pilgrims in Jerusalem on this day of Pentecost would have been in the city since Passover. That means many of them would have seen Jesus enter into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. They would have heard him teach in the temple in the days leading up to Passover. Perhaps some of them would have even seen his body as it hung dead on the cross. They probably remember how this guy Jesus had a group of Galilean followers who had been really enthusiastic about him, who even expected him to be the Messiah but how all these followers had retired, humiliated from public view after their leader was condemned for blasphemy by the highest religious court and then crucified by the Romans. So imagine the surprise of this crowd of pilgrims when they suddenly hear a noise, the noise of a hundred or so Galilean men and women flooding into the street, proclaiming the mighty works of God. At this sound, verse 6 tells us, the multitude came together. Everyone wants to see what's going on. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Remember, though these are all Jews, they're Jews from every nation under heaven. And so they don't have a common first language. A little like uh, how Jewish Canadian kids today might pick up a little Hebrew on, in special classes on the weekend, but they mostly speak English at home. Uh, likewise, in those days, Jewish Mesopotamians and Jewish Asians and Jewish Romans and Jewish Arabians each spoke the language of their native country. Some of them could have had conversation with each other in Greek, the big international language of the day, but each group of pilgrims had its own native tongue, its own first language. And so verse 7 continues, they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? So how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, residents of Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews, that is Jews by birth, and proselytes, that means Gentiles who had converted to Judaism, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. In verse 7, they were amazed and astonished. Now in verse 12, they're amazed and perplexed, saying to, uh, saying to one another, what does this mean? What indeed do all of these strange events mean? 
The crowd can tell that something truly amazing is happening, but they're perplexed as to its meaning. So here's where we come to Peter's speech and to his quotation from the prophet Joel. Peter and the other 11 apostles stand forward and Peter lifts up his voice to speak to the crowd. First, he deals with the hecklers. There are a few people in the crowd who are making fun of the believers, saying in verse 13, they're filled with new wine. In other words, they're a bunch of lightweight drunks. But Peter begins in verses 14 and 15, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. They counted hours of the day beginning at sunrise. So the third hour of the day is something like 9 a.m. or 9.30. Peter is being a bit disarmingly funny here, as if to say, come find us at the 11th hour of the day and maybe we'll be getting into the new wine then. But come on, folks, it's only the third hour of the morning. But now Peter gets down to what he really wants to say. He preaches a short sermon, beginning in verse 16 and going all the way to verse 36. We only read the very beginning today. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about some of the later parts, focusing on the beginning. It's this beginning portion of Peter's sermon where he quotes from the prophet Joel. And this quotation tells us a lot. Like a good speaker, Peter announces the major themes of his speech right up front, and he finds them all in the prophet Joel. Now, announcing my major themes right up front is something I didn't do at the beginning of this sermon. So let me finally do that now. And I'll tell you the three points that I want to make today. Three points that I think all come out of Peter's application of Joel to the events of Pentecost. So point number one, with Jesus' victorious ascension into heaven, the last days have begun. Point number two, in these last days, God pours out his spirit on all his people. Point number three, God's people, the ones who receive his spirit, are those who call on the name of Jesus for salvation. So we begin with point number one, with Jesus' victorious ascension, the last days have begun. This is what Peter announces right away in verses 16 and 17. But this, he says, meaning this amazing speech phenomenon that you're witnessing, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Peter is telling the crowd that what they're currently witnessing is a sign of the beginning of the end of the world, a sign that the last days have begun. All through the Old Testament, God makes, uh, excuse me, let me rewind a bit. I, yeah, the last days, what exactly does this mean? What would it have meant to Peter and to his audience? Well, put simply, the last days are the time when God finally begins to fulfill all of his promises. All through the Old Testament, God makes promises to his people. And he keeps his promises. He keeps his promises so faithfully and so powerfully that his people have good reason to trust him. 
And on the basis of that trust, God asks his people also to trust him for a whole big set of amazing promises that remain in this age unfulfilled. You heard about this back when Keith was preaching through Hebrews chapter 11, remember? As far back as Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, God taught his people not just that he was going to give them the land of Canaan as an earthly inheritance, but that ultimately he would bring them to a heavenly homeland, to life with God in God's own place. But at the end of his long list of Old Testament saints, in Hebrews 11.39, the pastor writes, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They didn't receive what was promised in their own lifetime. But because of God's faithfulness to his people in the past, they trusted that God would eventually, at some real point in the future, bring all of his promises to fruition. Even if they died before the promises were fulfilled, they trusted that God was able to overcome even death and to include them in that future fulfillment. How exactly he was going to do that, they didn't know. But because they knew him to be faithful, they trusted that he would. Faithful Israelites knew that God had not yet fulfilled all of his promises, but they believed that someday he would. And one of the expressions the Bible uses to talk about God's future fulfillment of his promises is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a name for that great and magnificent day when the Lord finally accomplishes all of his purposes, when he finally does all of the good and perfect things that he wants to do for his people. Many of the Old Testament prophets, prophets talk about the day of the Lord, and among them is the prophet Joel. In the first half of Joel's short book, he warns the people of Israel that the day of the Lord will be a day of terrible judgment against evil, a day of woe for those who have drifted away from God's ways and are living wickedly. But in the second half of his book, Joel encourages the people of Israel that the day of the Lord will also be a day of great joy and comfort for those who have repented of evil and turned to God in faith. Because it will be the day of God's final confrontation with the enemies of his people. God will save his people from their enemies forever. He'll restore them and he'll dwell with them forever. So the day of the Lord is the last day, the day that marks the end of history as we know it, the end of the age where sin and death disfigure God's perfect creation. The day of the Lord is the last day, but Peter is talking here about the last days, plural. Peter actually adds this phrase to the quotation. You don't need to flip there now, but if this afternoon you want to look at Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, that's where Peter is quoting from, you'll see that Peter's quotation is substantially the same as the text of Joel, with this one major difference, that Joel doesn't talk about in the last days. Peter adds this phrase. Now, it's not that he's twisting Joel's words, not at all. Rather, Peter has understood well what Joel is actually talking about. And so he adds this phrase as a helpful explanatory gloss to give us some of the context from the rest of the book. Peter understands correctly 
that in this section of the book of Joel, the prophet is recording promises of God that haven't yet come to pass. And what's more, Peter sees that Joel positions these promises as taking place right before the very last day. So you can see this in verse 20b of our Acts passage. Verses 17 to 20a describe a whole series of things that will take place. God's pouring out of his spirit, wonders in heaven above, and signs on the earth below. And then verse 20b says that all of those things will happen before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. The things described in verses 17 to 20a happen before the day of the Lord, right before the very last day. These are the things that happen in the lead up to the very end. The things that signal that the last day itself is right around the corner. That's what Peter means by using this expression in the last days, which he borrows from some of the other prophets. He's referring to the things that take place at the beginning of the end in the immediate lead up to the final day, the day of the Lord itself. So when Peter quotes this passage from the prophet Joel, he's declaring to the crowd in Jerusalem that the last days, the period of signs and wonders that comes right before the day of the Lord is now. The last days have begun. Why now? Why should the last days begin on Pentecost in the year 30-something CE, rather than 100 years earlier or 1,000 years later? Why is this the right time for the last days to begin? Simply because they've been unlocked by the work of Jesus, God's anointed. Jesus, by his incarnate life, his sacrificial death, his glorious resurrection, and his triumphant ascension, has made it possible for us to move into a new and final period of history. Because Jesus' earthly ministry has ended, the last days have begun. All the questions that the Old Testament saints might have had about how God would accomplish his promises have now been answered in Jesus. How will God finally put away all his people's sins? Through Jesus who atoned for our sin on the cross. How will God include the faithful dead in his final salvation? Through Jesus, who defeated death in his resurrection. How will God finally bring his people to live with him forever in perfect fellowship and intimacy? Through Jesus, who by his ascension into heaven makes it possible for us to draw near to God now, and who, when he returns on the very last day, will establish God's kingdom fully over all the earth. Some of God's great promises have already been fulfilled. Through Jesus, God has already forgiven our sins. As Glenn taught us last week, through Jesus, because of his descent into the realm of the dead and then his triumph over death, dead believers are already now in God's presence. Some of the great promises aren't fulfilled yet. The resurrection of all the dead, for example, and the final and full establishment of God's kingdom, the new heaven and new earth. But we already know that when they are fulfilled, it will be through Jesus, by his agency and by the merits of his work on earth. 
So that's what it means for Peter and for us to be living in the last days. It doesn't mean that all of God's promises have already been fulfilled, but it does mean that everything necessary to secure their fulfillment has already been accomplished. Let me offer a, a bit of a silly analogy, but I hope it will be helpful. Let's say I really want a pizza, but I can't afford to buy one. So my kind friend orders me a pizza using his credit card. So the pizza is paid for. It's on its way. It hasn't come yet. I don't know exactly when it will come. But I know that everything necessary for that pizza to come to me has already been accomplished. The full price has already been paid. And I know that the pizza will come. So in the meantime, I'm living in the last minutes of this pizza-less age. <laughs> so I'm still waiting, right? But I know it's coming. In that same way, we're living in the last days of this age. We're still waiting, but we're waiting for something that we know has already been secured for us by the earthly ministry of our heavenly friend, Jesus. And of course, it's a gift infinitely more wonderful and infinitely more costly than a pizza, eternal life and fellowship with God. So that's point number one. With Jesus' victorious ascension into heaven, the last days have really begun. We're in the last days. Now, point number two. In these last days, God pours out his spirit on all his people. God's pouring out of his spirit is the great sign of the last days. It's not the only sign. In verses 19 to 20, we also read about wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. It's possible that when Peter mentions those signs, he's thinking of things still to come things that will take place in between Pentecost and the final day. It's also possible that some of the things he's thinking of are things that have happened already before Pentecost. In verse 22, right after this quotation from Joel, Peter begins to speak to the crowd about Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Peter says, Jesus was attested by God with wonders and signs, the same terms that are used here in verse 19. So maybe he's thinking of some of the things that have already accompanied Jesus' ministry. It's true that the whole earthly ministry of Jesus was accompanied by signs and wonders of various sorts. But Joel's mention of blood and of the sun being turned to darkness might make us think especially of the crucifixion. Luke 23, verses 44 and 45, tell us that while Jesus hung bleeding on the cross, from noon to early afternoon, there was darkness over the whole land while the sun's light failed. Most of the crowd of pilgrims Peter is talking to would actually have witnessed that sign. They would have seen that darkening of the sun just a couple of months ago. 
Another of the signs mentioned in verse 19 is fire. And of course, this reminds us of what the believers have just experienced, which we skipped over in verse three of this same passage. Divided tongues of fire appearing to them and resting on each one of them. So much for the other signs. What Joel is most interested in and what Peter is most interested in and what we're most interested in today is not any of those signs mentioned in verses 19 to 20, but the great sign mentioned in verses 17 and 18. So listen again to those beautiful verses, 17 and 18. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. To your son, uh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. The great sign of the last days, the great gift of God to his people in these last days, is his pouring out of his spirit. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, has been active in the world and in the storyline of Scripture from the very beginning. The Spirit of God does a lot of different things in the Old Testament, but probably the most conspicuous thing, the main thing that the Spirit does, is speak to God's people through the prophets. That's all that a prophet really is, someone who receives a message from the Spirit of God and passes it on to God's people. Prophecy isn't a technique that you can learn or a skill you can acquire. It's a gift, something you can only receive if the Spirit of God chooses to give it to you. And most people in the Old Testament were not prophets, just a few women and a few men. Most people communicated with God through the mediation of prophets. God spoke to the prophet, and then the prophet spoke to the people. But only the prophet heard from God directly, from the Spirit of God directly. The prophets also spoke to God with an unusual directness and intimacy. They could have back and forth conversations with him. They could talk to him about their thoughts and feelings and about God's plans for his people and so on. One of our readings this morning was from Numbers chapter 11. We don't have time to get into that story in a lot of detail, but the gist of that story is that the great prophet Moses is tired of being the only one who has the Holy Spirit. Whenever any of God's people have a problem, they all come to Moses because he's the only one who can bring them God's word to help with the problem. And Moses is sick of this. He prays to God and says, I am not able to carry all these people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you want to treat me like this, Lord, kill me at once if I have found favor in your sight that I may not see my wretchedness. So that's how strongly Moses feels about this. He would rather die than continue to be the only one of God's people who has the Holy Spirit. Well, our loving God graciously hears this prayer and he tells Moses that he'll give his spirit to 70 elders of the people. So the elders gather with Moses at the tent of meeting and they receive the spirit. But the twist of the story is that the spirit doesn't just come down to these 70 elders. It also comes down on two other guys, Eldad and Medad, who were back at the camp. 
and they begin prophesying in the camp. So Joshua tells Moses, my Lord Moses, stop them. He thinks there's too much Holy Spirit, too many prophets. But Moses says to him in Numbers 11:29, and this is really the punchline of this story. Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them all. So from very, very early in the history of Israel, there's this sense that on the one hand, it's a wonderful and awe-inspiring thing that God talks to his people through the prophets. But that on the other hand, it would be cool if all God's people were prophets. If all God's people had direct communication with him through the spirit. Hundreds of years after Moses, the prophet Joel receives word from the Holy Spirit that this actually will take place. That at some point in the lead up to the final day, God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. Hundreds of years after Joel, Peter is now telling the crowd that this is what's just happened. The men and women now proclaiming the mighty works of God in every language under heaven are the fulfillment of Moses' wish and of Joel's prophecy. These are the sons and daughters, the young men and old men, the male servants and female servants Joel was talking about, who, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, have a new relationship of intimacy with him and a new authority to speak on his behalf, to proclaim his mighty works. It's because of Jesus that the last days have begun, and so it's also because of Jesus that this great sign and great gift of the last days has been poured out. Later in his sermon, in verse 33, Peter talks about Jesus this way. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, that's Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Joel said that the Lord would pour out his spirit. And according to Peter, Jesus is the one who has poured out God's own spirit on his people. So point number one, because of Jesus, the last days have begun. Point number two, in these last days, God pours out his spirit on all his people so that they all have a new relationship of intimacy with him and a new authority to speak on his behalf and proclaim his mighty works. Now is point number three. God's people, the ones who receive his spirit, are those who call on the name of Jesus for salvation. If I stood up after church one Sunday and said, I'm treating everybody to ice cream. You would understand from the context that everybody means everybody in the church, not everybody in the whole world, right? So in the same way, when the Lord says through the prophet Joel, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. The context in the book of Joel suggests that all flesh means all of God's people, not literally, you know, raccoons and everything that has flesh, right? All of God's people is what Joel is talking about. If you look later this afternoon at Joel chapter two, you'll see that in this section of his book, God addresses his audience as my people. 
That's who he's talking to. He's talking to the children of Zion and to Israel. So when he then says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, he's talking about all Israelite flesh. The lines that follow, your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. These lines emphasize that God's spirit will be poured out equally on men and women, equally on young and old, on all of God's people. But what we don't see here is any mention of Gentiles, that is, non-Jews. Now, please don't uh, panic and don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that Gentiles can't receive the Holy Spirit. There's a whole story arc in the book of Acts devoted to proving the opposite, that Gentiles do receive the Spirit of God when we have faith in Jesus. And obviously, this is a hugely important point to many of us here today, because most of us in this church are not Jews. We're Gentiles by birth. So please know that that's what I believe and affirm. My point is just that what God promises through the prophet Joel is that he will pour out his spirit on all his people, on all the people of Israel. So what happens in Acts chapter 2 then is actually quite surprising, isn't it? Let me emphasize again that everyone in this whole story is Jewish. The believers are all Jews. The great crowd are all Jews. Most of them Jews by birth and a couple of the Romans by conversion. And they're not just any old Jews, but as verse 5 has said, devout Jews. In his speech to the crowd, Peter addresses them as men of Judea in verse 14. And again in verse 22 as men of Israel. So everyone here is a Jew. Everyone here is an Israelite. And a reader of the prophet Joel might well expect that everyone here will be included in the all flesh who receive God's spirit. But in fact, in this story, the spirit does not come down like a mighty rushing wind and like tons of fire on the crowd. God does not pour out his spirit on the 500,000 devout pilgrims. He pours out his spirit on the 120 women and men who believe in Jesus. Less than 0.0003% of the Jews gathered in Jerusalem that day received this gift this gift that was promised to all of God's people. This is quite a shock, isn't it? So what's going on here? Well, I think the book of Joel itself gives us the resources for thinking through this puzzle. Peter's quotation from Joel ends with this great sentence in verse 21 of our Acts passage. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We'll say more about that verse in a second, but first let's read on to what comes next in the book of Joel. Right after the prophet Joel says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He continues, for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said. And among the survivors, there shall be those whom the Lord calls. That's Joel chapter 2, verse 32, if you want to look at it later. Remember, Joel is talking in his book about the day of the Lord. And one of the points he makes about it earlier in his book is that it will be a day of terrible judgment, not only for the Gentile nations that harass Israel, 
but also for those of the house of Israel who are disobedient and unbelieving. Many of the people of Israel will be condemned on the day of the Lord. But some will escape that judgment, those whom the Lord calls. This is the concept of the remnant, though that word doesn't get used uh, by Joel and Peter. The remnant is a word used by many of the other Old Testament prophets and New Testament writers. And it's a word that talks about the faithful core of God's people, the faithful core of God's people who will remain even after the disobedient and unbelieving are swept away. Not all the people who seem on the outside to belong to God's people turn out, in fact, to be true heirs to his promises. So it's super important to understand that the remnant isn't an exclusive club. The point isn't that only the people God really likes get to be part of that and everyone else can burn. Rather, God invites everyone to join the faithful remnant, the faithful core of his people who will survive the day of judgment. That's why he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's an open invitation. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But not everyone will call on the name of the Lord. Not everyone who hears Joel's prophecy or Peter's sermon will turn to the Lord in repentance and faith. And so only some will survive the day of judgment. Only some will turn out to be the true heirs of God's promises, the true people of God. And in Acts chapter 2, we can see very clearly who the true people of God are, because they're the ones who receive his promised spirit. The true people of God are those who believe in Jesus. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter and the believers know that in, this la in these last days, calling on the name of the Lord means calling on the name of Jesus. And Peter urges his hearers to do just that. In verses 38 and 39, Peter closes his sermon with these words. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. These devout Jews are invited to become part of the remnant. They already belong to God's people in an outward way. But it's only through faith in Jesus that they can become part of the true people of God the true heirs of God's promises. It's only through faith in Jesus and baptism in his name that they can receive forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. As the book of Acts goes on, we quickly learn that this is true not only for Jews, but also for Gentiles, that all who trust in Jesus for salvation become members of God's people, heirs of God's promises, and recipients of the Holy Spirit. So here are three points again. <laughs> Number one, with Jesus' victorious ascension, the last days have begun. Number two, in these last days, 
God pours out his spirit on all his people. And number three, God's people, those who receive the spirit, are the ones who call on the name of Jesus for salvation. The day of the Lord, the great and magnificent day of Christ's return and his final judgment of the world continues to draw near. We don't know when it will get here, but we know that in the meantime, God has given his Holy Spirit to all believers so that we can have a new kind of intimacy with him and a new kind of power to proclaim him to the world. As these last days draw to a close, God's invitation and his promise still stand for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Amen.